All right, the book of Jeremiah, we finished chapter 10 Sunday night, or at least, you know, when I say we finished it, obviously we didn't cover every little thing, but I think we did a pretty good job getting a good, pretty good understanding of it. Tonight, the goal is Jeremiah chapter 11. However, I don't know how much of the actual text we're going to cover. We're going to kind of deal with, I think, a bigger issue that pertains to the book of Jeremiah in general. And I think it's going to fit perfectly with this chapter, at least in my mind it is, okay? Um, The only, uh, is it, what is it? Which handbook? Haley's Bible handbook may give me at least an excuse to do it this way. We'll have to see, all right? But in Jeremiah chapter 1 to Jeremiah chapter 10, if we were to do a basic summary, I think we can say that Jeremiah has been sent primarily to the people of Judah to do what? To offer what kind of words? Warn them and words of coming judgment. Why are they going to be judged primarily? Idolatry, 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 right? They constantly keep turning to idols over and over and over and over and over again. Now, whenever you see their problem, right, of idolatry, then there's lots of discussion on first, well, how should they fix the problem? And typically we basically say, well, just repent and stop doing it, right? Just repent and stop doing it. And, and then, of course, most pastors then take that, apply it to us, apply it to our country, apply it to idolatry, okay. But obviously the, the message is first and foremost, obviously for the people of God, because for Judah, it's for Israel. Um, and so it would first and foremost apply to the church. But when we talk about how to fix a spiritual problem or the spiritual condition, that's kind of where we're going to focus a little bit tonight. We're going to look at three words. I mentioned this word in a recent sermon review, these three words in a a recent sermon review, and we'll we'll talk about those three words in a minute, but let's try to find, at least get some kind of idea of what's going on in Jeremiah chapter 11. So let's just start reading Jeremiah chapter 11, and then after we read a little bit, maybe you're going to, maybe something will come to your mind, maybe it will not, then we can, you, you can, if you feel free to check your study Bibles, you can check anything you want. I'm going to use uh, the Bible handbook here because they offer kind of a summary and a context, but we'll read just a little bit and see if we can get some idea of what's going on. All right, Jeremiah chapter 11. All right, everybody there? Jeremiah chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 1. The words that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying. Now, typically, I think we're starting to kind of fall into a pattern. Whenever we hear that or see that kind of phrase, it's almost like, okay, here's a new sermon. Here's a new message, right? I think we, we've kind of fallen into that being a, kind of a, a hermeneutical clue, right? Because for a long time, there was a sermon being preached at the door of the temple, right? So now we have the word, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant... And speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, this seems to be the message here is going beyond whom? Just the people coming to the temple. This is for the nation, right? And say thou unto them, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant, which I command your fathers and the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice 
and do them according to all which I command you, so shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. Then answered I and said, so be it, O Lord. Now, this, uh, there's a lot we could do here, right? Obviously, we could focus it over and over and over in the Old co- Covenant. It seemed to be basically, do this and live. Do this and prosper. Do this and be blessed. Don't do this and you will be cursed. And so we would understand it from a theological perspective that over and over and over, they're given the law and over and over and over, they do what? They fail over and over and over and over again. And we could talk a long time about that. If we go to the next, uh, my Bible puts one through five in one section, and then they start a new section in verse six. Then the Lord said unto me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, hear ye the words of the covenant and do them. Obviously, what's being stressed over and over and over in this chapter? The covenant, the covenant and obey. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, say, obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do. They but they did not, did them not. And the Lord said unto me, a conspiracy is found among the men of Jerusalem and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. They went after other gods to serve them and the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I have made with their fathers. Please note verse nine. There's a conspiracy is the way the word is used. What does the NIV say? Yes. Okay, a conspiracy. And it seems that basically what it's saying that all of a sudden it's like the people got together to do what? To go back to the idols. To go back to the idols. Now, why? What, what would be possibly this be referring to? Well, according to the Bible handbook, listen carefully. This is uh, Haley's Bible handbook. They go through each chapter and they give a little paragraph, right? And then pages fall out of it. All right, here we go. All right. They refer to this chapter as the broken covenant. Now, we definitely can see the word covenant has been referenced a number of times. I don't know how many times it's used total in the chapter, but at least in the first part, the word covenant's been used a few times. All right, this is what they say. This chapter seems to belong to the period of reaction after Josiah's great reformation. I want you to write down the word reformation. All right, I want you to write down the word reformation. Now, they say this great reformation took place in 2 Kings. Does anybody know exactly where it occurred in 2 Kings? It is King Josiah. Yeah, let me read that again. This chapter seems to belong to the period of of reaction after Josiah's great reformation. Okay, his reign is in chapter 22. 
okay? Chapter, chapter 23 is where his great supposed reformation takes place, okay? We want to read a little bit of that reformation. I think it's probably, I think it's probably a good thing to do considering that's the context that they are putting this in, all right? And if you go to Jeremiah chapter 1, doesn't it give in the time that Jeremiah uh, ministered and is Josiah mentioned? Go to Jeremiah chapter 1, I believe it's verse 1. Is Josiah mentioned? There we go. All right, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 2. Okay, I was saying verse 1, but verse 2. So, Jeremiah prophesies ministry ministers during the time of Josiah. It goes way past that, right? Does it not? Yes. Okay, but during the time of Josiah, there was a time of great reformation. All right? Look at 2 Kings 23, verse 1. And the king, what king is that? Josiah. He sent, and they gathered unto all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant. See the word covenant? The book of the covenant? What is the, uh, what's been the emphasis in Jeremiah 11? Covenant. And then what? Breaking the covenant, not obeying the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar, made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart, all their soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And all the people stood to the covenant. Everybody seeing the emphasis? And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels which were made for Baal. We'll get what had happened. Idolatry inside the temple. And he's saying to bring all of them out, right? And for the grove and for all the host of heaven and he burned them without Jerusalem in the, in the fields of Kidron and carry the ashes unto, uh, of them unto Bethel. And he put down the idolatrous priest whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places, in the cities of Judah, and in the places round about Jerusalem, them also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the planets and to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem unto the brook of Kidron. He burned it at the brook of Kidron, stamped it small to powder, cast the powder therefore upon the graves of the children of the people. He brake down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the houses of the Lord, where the women were hanging for the grove, where the women wove hangings for the grove. And he brought all the priests out of the city of Judah and defiled the high, high places where the high priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba uh, and break down the high places of the gates that were in the entering of the gate of Joshua, the governors of the city, which were on a man's left hand and the gate of the city. All right. I think you can see what was taking place here. All right. Reformation was happening. He was cleaning it up. He was changing it all. But then when we get to Jeremiah 11, there was a great conspiracy to do what? Go back to 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 9. 
To turn back to the iniquities. To turn back to what? The idolatry. Remember how Haley's Bible handbook states it? Let me read it again. This chapter, speaking of Jeremiah 11, seems to be to belong to the period of reaction after Josiah's great reformation, when the people had restored their idols. Their response to Jeremiah's rebuke is, well, pretty strong. We'll get to that in a minute. So once again, so I wanted you to write down the word reformation. I want you to write down a second word. I want you to write down the word conformity. I want you to write down the word reformation. I want you to write down the word conformity. And then I want you to write down the word transformation. Three very important words. Now let's define these words. What's the definition of transformation? Transformation is a thorough or dramatic change in form or appearance. So transformation is a thorough, dramatic change in form or appearance. It's a metamorphosis. It's a, it's a complete and radical change. When you think of a transformation, you're thinking it's thorough, meaning what? When we think of a transformation that's thorough, what do we mean? It's total, it's complete, or we could say it's internal and external. It's a total, true transformation. All right? How about the word reformation? Look up the definition for the word reformation. Reformation is defined the action or process of reforming an institution or practice. Reform means the improvement or amendment of what is wrong, corrupt, or unsatisfactory. Now, what's the, what would you say is the massive difference between a reformation and a transformation? This is very important, I think, to understanding the entire book of Jeremiah. A reformation could be just what? External. You're reforming the practice. You're reforming the action. Doesn't mean, in other words, there can be a complete reformation without any transformation. Now, transformation would technically include what? A reformation. But a reformation could exclude a transformation. Does everybody see that? You got it? Are you sure? All right. A transformation would, would include a reformation because it would exclude everything. But a reformation in theory could just, could completely exclude an actual transformation. All right. It could exclude, a, a transformation will include reformation, but a reformation could possibly exclude a transformation. That's very important. All right. What's the third word? Conformity. Now, what, is, what does conformity mean? Yeah, conformity is compliance with standards, rules, or laws. It's behavior in accordance with socially accepted conventions or standards. 
all right? Conformity is the act of matching attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors to group norms. Now, most people live their lives practicing some form of conformity because culture says conform or be cast out, right? To quote the popular lyric, okay? But I won't, but I won't go into a music history lesson. But conformity, it's like that's what you're just, you're almost instructed immediately to do that. You walk into a school, conform. If you don't, you're the outcast. And in many cases, then that creates conflict. And in many cases, the brilliant educators come along and tell the student who won't conform, you just need to go along to get along, which is, uh, I, don't get me started on that. How, why? Why does that person have to go along to get along? Make everyone else go along with the person who's not going along with them. Why does it have to go one way? Oh, because it's easier to make the one person go along with everyone else. Well, who, who came up with that rule? Make all of them go along with me. That's the way it should be, okay? But no, but that's the whole thing, conformity. Now, how does conformity work in this situation? Well, if there's a reformation, right? Hey, we're going to get rid of this, and we're no longer going to do this, and we're going to do this. A lot of people will simply conform. So there can be conformity without transformation, you can reform, and everyone will be like, oh, get rid of the idol. Okay, we, we don't do that idolatry stuff anymore. We are reformed, and everyone just marches, follows like sheep, you know. Drives me crazy. Got to go along with the crowd. But where does reformation and conformity ultimately end? Reformation and conformity ends right where you started you're going to go right back to where you started because it's all what? External. External change is only temporary. Why? Because what controls everything is the internal. From a spiritual perspective, Reformation focuses on what? From a, from a theological, spiritual perspective. Reformation is primarily focused on, the, on what? The behavior. If you reform the behavior, what still drives everything? The internal part. Well, from a Christian perspective, that internal part is sinful. It is wicked. It is ungodly because we have a sinful nature. Reformation doesn't usually focus on the nature. It focuses on the actions. Or Reformation sometimes leads to nothing more than behavioral modification. Now, if you, if you convince the, if you could create a situation where the majority will modify said behavior or reform said behavior, then you'll get some conformity just to go along with it so they're not outside of the societal norms. So then everyone will follow. Now, there's always going to be those who cast off societal norms, and typically throughout history, those are the ones who end up dying and getting punished because they won't go along with the crowd, okay? But that's a whole different podcast, okay? That's a whole different subject. But you see where this is leading spiritually, Josiah had a great reformation. He tore everything down, grinded it down to powder. The priests were taken down. 
There was destruction. There was the eradication of it. And of course, many of the people would have done what? In fact, I think if you read 2 Kings 23 and, and some, and maybe it's in 1 Chronicles as well, there's going to be an, uh, an attitude where many of the people will be like, amen, we're going along with this. Yes, we're going to obey the law. We're going to do it. Because that now is the expected behavior. The reformation and the conformity is of no spiritual value. I will argue Christianity has been so preoccupied with the concepts of reform and conform, right? Conf- to conform, and, you know, to conformity and reformation. I'm right? trying, to, trying to make sure I say those terms correctly because that's where Christianity is constantly trying to get things to work. We don't like something, we're going we're gonna to demand, we're going to try to reform that behavior, in many cases by demands, boycotts, protests, what if we're going to silence whatever, because then we'll get them to do what? To conform. But what, what, is, what does that change? Does it change anything other than the appearance of things? But inevitably, what will happen? What people truly are, what people truly want. Josiah had a great reference. I mean, you read about it in what, 2 Kings 23. Is that where we were, 2 Kings 23? You read about it. It's also in First. I believe it's, uh, hang on, I can look here. It's also in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, all right? You look at those two chapters and it describes the Reformation process. And it would look good, right? You probably would say what? Way to go, Josiah, man. Woo. He's got it. That's right. Tear that stuff down. Burn it. Get rid of those priests. Pull it off. Fix it. And then you get to Jeremiah 11. There was a, how does it, re- look at the verse again. Does it say a great conspiracy or just a conspiracy? What's the actual words? Verse 9, it just says conspiracy. A conspiracy, okay. There is a conspiracy. I was hoping it said great conspiracy because that would even make it even more powerful. But you get the idea. It's a conspiracy. And what does the text say about the conspiracy? Well, just the actual words. All right, to do what? To turn back to the iniquities, all right? To turn back the, to the iniquities. As this one says, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been discovered among the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. They have returned to the iniquity of their fathers who refused to obey my words and have followed other gods to worship them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah broke my covenant I made with their ancestors. We just talked, we just read in 2 Kings about the covenant, the covenant, the covenant, the covenant. Everything looked really good. Now I would, I would, I would challenge, now this is kind of the spiritual challenge and I, I said this on a podcast and I'll say this here. In your own Christian life, you have to ask yourself how mu- much of your Christian life has been reformation How much of your Christian life has been simply conforming? And then how much true transformation has there been? We like to pretend, 
We like to preach in the American church that it's all what? Transformation. And we teach that transformation occurs when? At the moment of salvation. And we tell every new believer that they are what? A new creature in Christ. The old is gone. And all things have become new. Now that sounds like a total transformation. That would be thorough, right? For all the old to be gone, that would be the old nature would be completely eradicated. And if that is true, then would there not, what kind of transformation that would be? It would be perfect, it would be complete, and it would be total. The only problem is you're told that three days after salvation, and by day seven, you're thinking, something's broken. Now, everyone will tell you, oh, it's okay, it's okay. I mean, nobody's perfect. And, but you should be asking them, well, wait a minute. Why aren't, is no one perfect if I'm a new creature in Christ, the oldest gone and all is new? But for some weird reason, Christians never ask that question. We're just like, that's right, I'm a new creature. I don't do it. It's, it's those bad people over there. We're all good. And then we become judgmental, self-righteous jerks because we got to pretend that we're better than we actually are to conform to the supposed standard that we all pretend to participate in, where nobody can be open and honest about the reality of their life. Well, that, we're, we haven't got to that question yet, right? Right now, I'm just take, taking apart the reformation and the, and the conforming, right? So, but, but, we, but most people believe the transportation, the transportation, the trans, <laughs> transformation happens where? At salvation. I think we can eradicate and just, I, that's just, it clearly doesn't work, right? Clearly there, now there is a transformation that happens at salvation, right? There is a transformation that happens at salvation. Positionally complete. I go from a sinner to a saint. I go from a, a absolute reprobate to perfect. I go from disobedient to obedient. So there is a complete transformation that occurs, but it is positionally. Now, the question becomes, and it is the million dollar question, and whoever has the answer can write a book and become absolutely rich. What kind of transformation actually occurs? and one's Christian life, day in and day out. That's a very hard question, right? Now, we know the most famous passage about transformation is, right? Well, that's, that's the one that all, everyone always uses to say it happens at salvation. But then, depending on the next sermon they preach, they always go to the other famous passage on transformation. Oh, come on, everyone should know it. Romans chapter 12, for crying out loud. It's like the m- most quoted passage. No, that's Romans 5. Romans 12, come on. No. Nobody knows verse 1 and 2? Nobody, that's, I'm getting nervous here, okay? That's a pretty common verse that everyone memorizes as a new believer. It's been a while. <laughs> Keep going. 
Do not be conformed, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You should be able to quote it. You should be able to just cite it. I mean, if you've not memorized that verse, you, you're probably not even a Christian, according to most people, right? I mean, you, you, you might want to memorize it. That's a, that's a pretty popular verse, right? Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Now, what's interesting is it tells you to what? Don't be conformed and be ye transformed. It doesn't say you are transformed, which then would call into question when everyone is telling you if you're in Christ, you're a new creature, old is gone and all is new. Well, how if everything is new? If everything is new, I don't need to be transformed. I would just say you already are transformed, so I wouldn't have to worry about you being conformed because you're already transformed. This seems to imply that's an action that must be taken. Yes? Or am I, or am I just reading incorrectly? Does that not seem to be calling for an action? Isn't it always preached that it's an action you must engage in? Well, it is so weird. You'll be in a church and on one hand be told you are a new creature, the old is gone, everything is new. And then everyone will sit in that church on a Sunday and say, Amen, pastor. And then two weeks later, he'll be like, do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here are the five ways that you can be transformed. And everyone will say, amen. And nobody's like, I think this contradicts what you said two weeks ago. Because I guess we don't ever bother to put two in, well, probably because two weeks later nobody remembers the last sermon that was preached. So maybe that's the issue. But for, you think Christians would have some problems. That's a big problem. So, are we a new creature in Christ? Yes, positionally. But practically, where does, trans, because don't, can't we all agree that reformation is not going to do much for us? Right? Conforming is of no value because you're only conforming. How many Christian kids conform? Right, they conform, right? Because they don't know any better. Mom and dad says Jesus is good, the devil is bad, Sin is bad. Being good is good. What does a kid want to do? Because they want to conform, right? Because they've been told their whole life, conform, conform. That's all parenting is, is trying to get the kid to conform, right? Right? We, we promote conformity. They conform. And then at some point they realize, why am I going along with this? Because what, what becomes evident no, what's it? No, not the world. Oh, no, the, what's inside of them. Okay, oh man, please don't say the world around them. That, that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole problem with Christianity. We always put the problem out there. The problem is inside, okay? You can't, everyone, uh, Christianity always wants to keep the kids away from the world. No, you should try to keep your kids away from the world because the problem is your kids, Okay, the problem isn't the world. The problem is inside your child. Okay, you, the, the enemy is inside. So what we do is we put a wall and say, don't look, Susie. Don't look, don't look. You know, don't see no evil. Don't hear no evil. Don't speak no evil. Do no evil. Okay, don't, just stay away from it. Stay away. Okay. And then all of a sudden you, you start hearing a growling sound or you start hearing, if you know that from a certain famous movie, and you realize the monster 
the, the serial killer, it's your kid. They're already corrupted. They're in the house. You locked the door. You should have kept the door open so that you could get out. Right? That's the way we always tend to, to, to do so. So guess what? We do a lot of trying to do what for kids? And even in parenting, our focus tends to be on reforming behavior or behavioral modification and on conformity. At some point, they realize that what's inside of them does not correspond to your list of rules and they're tired of conforming to it. So then they break out and try to seek to be to the horror and shock of the Christian parent because somehow they thought that their angel was perfect. Why? I don't know. They seem to forget that out of the heart comes everything. Adultery, fornication, lust. It all comes from inside. It doesn't come from outside. So, in your, so the question is, Sarah's question still asks, well, then what kind of transformation can there be? Well, if you look up the word transformation in a, say, in a concordance, I think the only place it's used is, is Romans 12 too. I could be wrong. Be transformed or, you, or the word, type in the word transformed. Now, we may want to look up the Greek word for transformed and see wherever, how else it's used. All right, transformed is used three times. All right. Okay. Okay, stop right. Second Corinthians 11. I think I know what that's going to be referencing. Ah, oh, see, not, that's not going to help us much, is it, right? All right. Second Corinthians chapter 11. You said 13 and 14? Or 14 and 15? It's numbers. Don't expect me to ever get them right, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 and 15. And this one possibly doesn't even help us much. It says, and, no, and, and this one, this translation doesn't use the word transformed. It says, and no wonder for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves. All right. They say disguise. The others say transformed. Yeah, it seems more, it doesn't seem to have the thorough, the whole thorough thing. Where we get metamorphosis, I believe, yeah. It's used four times. All right, so let's go with, so let's do this. Look up Romans uh, 12, 2 in the Blue Letter Bible app. Let's look up that Greek word. Let's do this. this. I know this is not exactly what we need to be doing for Jeremiah, but I think this is very important. If I can get uh, this to go, Romans 12. I'm going to click verse 2, go to interlinear. I'm going to go be transformed, and it's this Greek word. Strong's G, 3339, metamorpho. okay. Now, it's used four times, uh, two times transfigure, one time transform, one times change. It means to transform figuratively, metamorph- metamorphose, change, transfigure, transform. The places it is used is Matthew 17, 2. Matthew 17, 2. Right. This is the, transfigure, the, tra- the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. He was transfigured before them. He transformed. He changed. Right? His glory 
It was a total change. Mark 9, 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh him Peter and James and John, leadeth them up into a high mountain apart, uh, apart by themselves, and he was transfigured. Same thing. Then Romans 12, 2, telling us to be ye transformed, telling us to be transfigured, to be transformed, like, like in a sense, like Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, this seems to be speaking of a change that's under that's occurring. It doesn't seem to speak of a change that is complete. Agreed? 2 Corinthians 3.18 seems to be speaking of a change that's happening, not a change that is finished. Agree or disagree? Well, I'm just asking you, is it speaking of it as something that's already done or something that is underway? Do we agree or disagree? It's like we're watching it happen. Okay, but it's underway. Agreed? All right. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. If I go to... This uh, Bible, it reads like this. So, um, that's, that makes no sense because that's the wrong chapter. Second, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory that is from the Lord who is the Spirit. It seems the idea that we, as we focus on who Christ is, that we slowly are being transformed into that same image. But it's not complete. Right? So immediately this tells us what? When you say, when then the Bible talks about, about us being a new creature in Christ, that's not true of us practically. That's true of us positionally. Pro- positionally, I'm totally transformed. Practically, I am told to be transformed. That is a command, something I'm supposed to do. And then it says in 2 Corinthians somehow that by looking to Christ, I'm slowly being transformed into that image, but it's not complete and it's not done. Now, the question is, when you, when you go back to Romans 12 and it says, be ye transformed, what's the best? What, so if we take those two passages together, Romans 12, 2 and 2 Corinthians 3, 18, you put the two word together, how are, you be, how are we transformed if we take the two concepts together? How does transformation occur according to these two verses? Well, well, we'll start with Romans 12. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. What is the word renewing there? Does the, how, does the NIV use the word renewing? Does it use the word renewing? Let's, let's do a little work on the word renewing. Let's see if we can figure this out. Let's see if we have any hope here. Okay, uses the word renewing. This one used by the renewing of your mind. What is the Greek word for renewing? Okay. Just, that's fine if we, how to pronounce it. That's okay. A renovation, a complete change. But it's a change of what? Mind. Now, the Greek word for mind there, does it involve just the, the mental faculties? 
The Greek word for mind? Intellect. Intellect. Okay, it does seem to be focused there, right? Okay, but so primarily from, from the mind, right? Okay, all right, so according to this, the transformation occurs by changing what? Our mind, our thinking. Now, who can change our mind and our thinking? Now, this, 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 this gets to, de- this is not serious stuff. And look, so just to take a step back, because I don't want people to think I'm just chasing things for no reason. This is very important, okay? Because we had a reformation occur for the people of Israel and Judah more than once. But we clearly know Josiah tore it all down. And then we get to Jeremiah 11, and it's like, hey, there, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a conspiracy to do what? Go back. Meaning the Reformation did not last. How many different times in Israel's case were like, hey, we're so sorry. We're going to reform. We'll get rid of our idols. We'll do the right thing. We will obey. Only to go right back to the idols. The Reformation never keeps. Time and time again, many of the people would fall in line simply to conform to now what is expected. But over and over, that conformity would only last until they changed back. And once they changed back, the conforming would go the other way. So reformation and conforming is useless. That's got to be a warning to us. Something deeper needs to happen in our life or we just follow the same cycle Israel followed, which was a cycle of what? Failure, 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 failure. Now, the only ultimate hope is what? The imputed righteousness of Christ, right? The only hope is the positional hope. But now we, would, we care somewhat about our practical life, right? I think we would all want to experience transformation. Now, we, pay, we put these two verses together, and the first way the transformation occurs is the renewing of the mind. Well, how do you renew your mind? How do you renovate your mind? How do you change your mind? Okay? That's the, always the go-to answer. That's always the go-to answer, because every answer in Christianity is pray more and read your Bible more, Right? You get shot three times, read your Bible more, pray more. That won't take you to, take you to the hospital, okay? I'm not going to say it's not there. Okay. Well, I'm going to throw a word in that I think is important, right? Now, remember, there's a huge b- debate in the history of Christianity over the word repentance. Not everyone agrees on that word, right? Okay, right. Because a lot of people use change, the repentance is more than a change of mind. It's a change of behavior, right? But it's a change of mind. Now, how does this change of mind work? Well, it, when, we, it, when it comes to salvation, it works in what way? Well, now I've changed my mind to accept what? There is a God. He is holy. And I am a sinner. And I cannot save myself. And Christ died as a substitutionary sacrifice on my behalf. And by putting my faith in him... I will be declared to be righteous even though I am not. That's all re- requires a change of mind. So really, it, the change of mind is, it starts right there. But that change of mind must continually to be built upon. 
Now, what makes changing our minds so difficult? Oh, okay, there, that's very good. Sinful nature, I think, in many cases, fights against a change of mind. I think that's really good because the heart is and deceitful above. We've got a we got a deceit factory built inside of us, so that's already going to be problematic. All right. Now, in theory, in theory, what should happen is the more I read and study, the more I see a reality and a way that is not my way. Remember, it's always God's ways are not. His thoughts are not my thoughts. Anytime I open my Bible, I should be confronted with a way of thinking and a reality and a perspective that is 1,000% opposite to mine. And then I should be so confronted with that reality that then I work to change my mind to think that way. Now, just here's the thing. Thinking that way does not always lead to a transformation in practice. This is very important. A transformation in mind may not always lead to a transformation in practice. In theory, we would say it would, but I'm going to argue it will not. Because Christians change their mind and we acknowledge all kinds of things are sin, but that doesn't stop us from sinning, does it? So I think here's here when, when we say what kind of transformation should we be able to have? The transformation should be this, that now I will see, acknowledge, admit that which is wrong, even though I may be guilty of doing it. I may be doing it currently. I may be planning to do it five minutes from now. But I will at least acknowledge it and know it's wrong. Now, you would hope that transformation of mind would lead to a change of action, but we have something fighting inside of us that's going to fight against that. What we have a tendency to do is do what? We see what we don't like and then try to either reinterpret it, throw it out, And that's not transformation. That's not the renewing of your mind. We see a scripture we don't like and we start trying to do what? Well, okay. Well, in this situation, it's really not that bad. We start making excuses instead of just acknowledging it. No, I'm not saying acknowledge it it fixes everything, but you can't get anywhere until you acknowledge it, right? So the renewing of your mind is really just admitting what? The renewing of your mind is really just admitting what? The truth of what God says. Not trying to change it, not trying to reinterpret it, not trying to just accept what it says. That doesn't mean you like it. Doesn't even mean you agree with it. Doesn't even mean you can explain it. Doesn't even mean that you're going to do it. But it starts there. The renewing of your mind is exposing yourself as much as possible to God's ways and God's thoughts, which will demonstrate to you, if you're even remotely honest, that they are not your ways 
are your thoughts. And you should admit when they're not your ways and your thoughts. The problem is too many Christians read the Bible, right? And then a set of transformation by the renewing of your mind, they settle for conformity or reformation. Well, I'm supposed to clean this up and I'm supposed to do it and I'm just going to go along with it. No, you, you have to acknowledge. It's, it's not just trying to go along to get along. In fact, it, to me, it's more transformation to say, I read it, I know it, but I, hey guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not feeling that. I want to do different. I desire to do different. I, 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 I struggle with it. I know God says I shouldn't do that way or shouldn't think by the way, but I'm just going to be honest. I desire that. I want that. I feel that. that. But you're not allowed to do that in Christianity because Christianity calls for conformity. Well, you can't, get, you can't get transformation because all you do is pretend to be that which you're not. I thank thee, God, that I'm not like all of these other people. Yes, you are internally. The renewing of the mind starts with just, I want to make, so I'm going to go with this. The renewing of your mind occurs by constantly exposing yourself to God's ways and God's thoughts and acknowledging that they're not your ways and your thoughts. That's not how you're typically going to have it defined. Everybody wants it to be this supernatural, like I just read a couple of scriptures and dun, 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 dun. I'm transformed. No, it doesn't work that way. If it did, 2,000 years of church history, we got a Bible in every, there's like 50 Bibles per person in the United States. Okay, I mean, it's everywhere. So, I mean, clearly it doesn't work. But what can work is we transform. The renewing of my mind leads to a transformation in what? And how I think. Where I will acknowledge that's a sin. And I still commit it. Now, we don't want to have to say that. But there there cannot be any transformation unless there's that kind of honesty, right? I'm not saying you have to stand up in front of church and tell everyone, but you got to be honest with yourself, right? You got to be like, man, I know that's wrong. And the more you can place yourself under it, then it will happen. And then the second way transformation occurs, go back to 2 Corinthians 3.18, is what? All right, how does this seem to imply that it takes place? We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed. The more we, we, we look and see God as who he is. All right, so think of it this way. The more... To be the renewing of my mind is me being is exposing myself to the truth of God's word, knowing that it's God's ways and his thoughts and are not my ways and my thoughts and acknowledging that. Right. That's how I begin to renovate my mind. Right. I'm renovated because I'm exposed to it. And secondly, by constantly 
spending time beholding God's character, his attributes. Because the more I see his attributes, the more I realize he is different from me. And the more I see him, in fact, think about it. This is so, remember, this is straight up Calvin. I've talked about this in this church a million, million times. I've told everyone in this church a million times to read Calvin's Institutes, right? At least the first couple of chapters. I've said that 20 something years, right? Over and over and over. When we see God as he truly is, we see ourselves as we truly are. You'll never see yourself as you are until you see God as he is. It, the more you look to God, the more you see what you're not. You can't, you have no active, you have no way of perceiving reality apart from seeing God as he is. Until you see the truth of God, you cannot see reality. Your entire perspective of reality is skewed. It is messed up. You can't see, you don't, you can't see colors the right way. You can't see reality the right way. Truth, you can't see anything the right way because you've not seen reality. Reality is when you see the face of God and then when you see the face of God as he truly is, then you realize as Isaiah, when he saw God high and lifted up, he said, woe is me. Because then he finally could see himself. Too many times Christians want to look, instead of looking to God's attributes, we simply look at other people. And if I look to other people, I will perceive myself in a way that's not accurate. When I see God, I see me, I am broken. So really, if you think about this, what is required for any true transformation is to constantly place myself before God's word while I'll be confronted with thoughts and ways that are different than mine, and I need to acknowledge those ways are are true and accurate and that they're not my ways and my, my thoughts, And that I acknowledge the truth of them even though I acknowledge my struggle with them or maybe my unwillingness to even want to submit to them. I'm willing to admit that. And then secondly, I constantly look to what? The character and attributes of God. Then I will see myself as I really am. Now, does that mean you're going to be immediately trans? Obviously not. Not. Because clearly this transformation is a process that will never end until glorification. And we can Im- immediately see those two things require the involvement of whom? Us. We have to do those things. That's why it says, be ye transformed. That's a command for you to do so. And we're always going to fall short. Now, this transformation here has no bearing on what? This transformation that we're talking about, Romans 12, 2 and 2 Corinthians 3, 18, this transformation has no bearing on what? Our justification. Now, this is very important because most people use this transformation as a basis to judge your justification, which is completely in error because that cannot ever be used to judge my justification because my justification is by an imputed righteousness. My imputed, I'm already perfect. How can you, you can say, look at all your mistakes. It doesn't matter, I'm perfect. Not only that, any mistake you point to or any sin has already been paid for 
In Christ, I don't know how you can judge me anyway. So that the whole thing. So don't ever do that. But I, what I want you to see is when you read Jeremiah 11, what do you see here? Sin and failure, sin and failure, sin and failure. In fact, over and over in every chapter. So we'll just end by reading the verse that I think is the one that should jump out at all of us, right? And the Lord said unto me, a conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. They went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. The reformation and the conforming did not work. And it never has, and it never will, and Christians need to stop trying to reform culture and call for culture to conform to what we want, because that's never been the biblical model. We call people to faith in Christ. Once they come to faith in Christ, then because of their positional transformation, we hope that what will flow from that is love and gratitude that will then pursue a practical transformation based off constant exposure to the word of God to see his ways and his thoughts are different from ours and then beholding his attributes so that we can see reality for what it is. We'll stop there. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Forgive us for how we've approached things from a flawed perspective. I pray this challenges us in our own Christian life and how we see culture and how we engage it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...